0: pretending. Open your Bibles tonight please to the book of 1 Kings chapter number 17 as we continue on in our series entitled the Lord God of Elijah. 1 Kings chapter number 17 and we begin our reading this evening in verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin, to remembrance, and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times, and cried unto the Lord, and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. The woman said to Elijah, Now, by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in thy mouth. The word of the Lord in thy mouth is true." You'll remember in our first message in this series, I talked about Israel being a nation on the wrong road, and it was so very easy to make an application to our situation today. In dealing with that wayward nation, God was preparing Elijah as his instrument. But I want you to notice something that really amazes me in this story, we're going to see in the weeks that come that the battle's going to be raging, so to speak, and he's going to confront and challenge the nation. But here is something that is absolutely amazing. Although there is a national problem that God calls our attention to earlier, now he calls our attention to just a single woman. The focus is narrowed down from all of these thousands and thousands, millions of of Israelites, and now he goes from that to talking about the needs of just one woman. And, and and to me, that reminds me that God is concerned about the individual. You think about him as the God of the universe. I mean, he keeps it all running. He not only created, he is in control of everything that's going on. Amen. And yet he has time for you just one person think about god thinking about you that's amazing to me and so in this story we learn that life is tough it's confusing and that we go from one crisis to another and boy this is just a really great example of that i want you to think about three things tonight in this story facing the impossible Is the title of the message, and I want you to think about the mystery. I want you to think also about the miracle and then about the manifestation. That is what is revealed as a result of this miracle. But first let's look at the mystery itself. Look at verse number 17 again. Here we see her calamity. It came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. Now, I just said that the road of life takes us from one crisis to another, and our trials often come at unexpected times. Now, remember, this woman has just gone through the crisis of being at the point of starvation. You talk about pressure, I mean, that's pressure. Well, you don't have anything to eat. I mean, here you are, you and your family, and you have absolutely nothing to eat. You're in trouble. We can do without a lot of things, but none of us can survive without food. Now, the good news, as you already know, is that God took care of that problem, didn't he? I mean, amazingly, God just said, look, you know, I'm going to fill the the barrel of meal and the cruise of oil, and every day you can come back and there's going to be enough to get you and your son through that next day. And he did exactly as he promised. But the bad news is there's more bad news. Remember I said from crisis to crisis. She's at the point of starvation and God feeds her, but now her son is dead. I mean, this is a parent's worst nightmare. She could could see the drought was coming. She knew that. The prophet had prophesied that there would not be any rain for three years. She saw that coming and we see some problems coming, but she did not see death coming. We all face trials of various sorts, but this is, as severe as it gets. I mean, nothing seems more final than death. And so this woman is facing what appears to be an absolutely impossible situation. That's the calamity, but notice her confusion here in verse number 18. And as you might expect, she didn't understand why this happened. She wasn't the only one confused. Elijah didn't know. That reminds me that the preacher doesn't always have the answer. When I first started preaching, I thought, you know, uh, people are going to be coming to me for counsel. They're going to look to me for direction. I've got to have an answer to everything. (laughs) Boy, that's a big mistake. Thinking that I needed to give an answer for everything. Because, listen, I don't have all of the answers. No, nobody does. A lot of times we face situations that we absolutely cannot understand. And that that's what's going on here. She's confused. The preacher is confused. And, and i got to tell you, it just seems really unfair. Don't you think? I mean, here's a generous woman in a desperate situation. She takes what little she has and gives it to the preacher first. I mean, how many people would have done something like that? They would have said, now look, preacher, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind, you know, cooking a fried chicken dinner. I wouldn't mind taking care of you if I had it, but I don't because I've just got enough for me and the boy. I mean, that's all I've got. And Elijah said, no, you give it to me first. This is an amazing woman. I don't, I'm not sure that I know anybody that would do what she did take food from her starving family and give it to the preacher. And at that point, she's not altogether even convinced that this guy's for real. Don't forget that. Because by the end of the story, she's going to be convinced. But at that point, she didn't really know. I don't know how she reasoned. She might have thought, well, you know, we're going to have one more meal and die anyway. I might as well give this a shot. I don't know. It might be that she had been thinking a lot about God in that situation and had decided that this is what God would have me to do. But however you look at it, she is an amazing woman and it does not seem fair that something like this would happen to her. But really, folks, we see that that again and again. Don't we said all the time. People that you know that love God, they're faithful to God, they're serving God... And yet, all of a sudden, some horrible calamity comes into their life. And, you know, I admit there have been times, you know, I've thought, well, why didn't that happen to so-and-so instead of them? I mean, I've usually got a name I can put with that. Somebody that doesn't love God. Somebody that's out of the will of God. Somebody that, you know, is an enemy to Christianity. Why couldn't it happen to them? And maybe you've thought that way. But it seems so unfair. Turn over in Romans just a minute. Now, don't leave here. Just turn over to Romans for just a minute. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what Paul said about, about this business of us judging God, as it were. Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, listen. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? That is, who gave Him advice? Or who hath first given to Him? And it shall be recompensed unto Him again. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now it's obvious here, that Paul is emphasizing the fact that we cannot understand all of the ways of God. And there's often times that we're going to be confused. And we have to be careful how we respond in those confusing situations. Which brings us to the third thing. I want you to notice what happened next. We see not only her calamity and her confusion, but we see her criticism. Notice in verse number 18 again, because she is confronting the preacher. She's calling him on the carpet here. Evidently, this is her only child. And and, and put yourself in her place. A mother with just one child looking forward to the day that he was going to become a man, have a family of his own, and she's just envisioned all of this like parents do. And now all of those dreams are gone. It's over. She's lost it all. She has lost the one thing that means more to her than anything else. What means the most to you? You don't need to answer, but just think about it. What means the most to you? I'm talking about earthly things. I know God's first on the list, but you're not going to lose Him. But of all of the earthly things, relationships, your wife, your husband, your parents, your children, or whatever it is, but just imagine losing That which is most important to you, that's where she is at. And so she lashed out at the preacher. She blamed him for her son's death. And notice this, she even associated his death with some sin in her past. And she asked the question, is this because of some, you know, some sin I committed? Uh, Something I did? And she probably has something in mind because all of us do. You've been there, haven't you? Something bad happens and you begin automatically to examine yourself and you begin to think, you know, could this be that God has allowed this to happen because I have been out of His will? So here she is lashing out at the preacher. Now don't you be too hard on this woman because we all tend to do the same thing. When we lose what we work for and what we love most, we all are tempted to blame somebody, sometimes even God. We're not bold enough to just come out and say it and to look up into the into the sky and say, God, it's all your fault. You did this. Now here's something that ought to help you. Turn over to Exodus for just a moment, chapter 4. I can remember years ago when I read this for the first time and it absolutely floored me. I've never gotten over it. You'll remember that God is raising up Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and so he's calling Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And naturally, Moses feels totally inadequate for the job. It's kind of like He's saying, here am I, send Aaron. And I don't want to go. Verse 10, And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. The Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, or the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Did you get that? Do you see what God is saying? God is taking full responsibility for what's going on. The deaf and the dumb and the blind. God says, I did that. If you want to blame somebody, God is saying, I've got big shoulders, just put it on me because I am the responsible party. You say, would God do stuff like that? Well, that's what He said. I'm not making this up. God says that's the way it is. None of those bad things would have ever happened if God did not allow it to happen. And so we've got to be very careful about how we respond to those calamities in our life. Now, let's look at the miracle. Beginning in verse 19 on down through verse 23. We don't need to read it all again. But I want you to notice that Elijah remained calm. That's not always easy to do. Here she is blaming the preacher and the natural tendency for a preacher is to try to defend himself. Maybe by quoting some verses of Scripture or whatever, but somewhere or another you think, well, I've got to defend myself. She's blaming me. It's not my fault. And so notice that Elijah does not retaliate. He does not try to defend himself. And by the way, that would not have helped any at all that. You know, we don't need to answer every charge or, or explain every question. You know, somebody says, well, you must be guilty. You're not going to try to defend yourself. It just doesn't do any good a lot of times. Now, notice in this miracle, I want you to notice three things about the miracle. Number one, God's power is always sufficient. We talked about that this morning at the conclusion of the message, how that God is able to do anything. God can heal the leper, God can raise the dead, and that's what we see here. Nothing seems more hopeless than death, but nothing's impossible with God because His power is unlimited. And this story is intended to make us think And to know that God is sufficient. Now, don't misunderstand. God's not trying to convince us that we have the power to raise the dead. He's reminding us that He has the power to raise the dead. And by the way, someday He will. It's just a matter of time. He's going to raise all of the dead. His power is sufficient. But secondly, sometimes God works in unusual ways. You read her in verse 19 and verse number 21, and this just seems whacked out crazy to me. I don't know what I would have done, but I, I'm convinced I would not have done what he did. He said, Give me the child, took the child out of her bosom, took the child up into a little chamber where he had been staying. He's been sleeping there. She's been, you know, feeding him and provided hospitality. And so he takes the child, lays the child on the bed stretches himself his body over that child three times and then prays now you know god does miracles but god uses different methods and i believe that we need to look for god in the unusual and the unexpected how would you how would you have advised elijah <laughs> Now, what kind of advice can you give whenever the kid's dead? I mean, boy, it's just hopeless, right? I wouldn't have any advice for him. You know, if anything, I might say, well, you, you, you can pray and see if that'll help. I'm not sure it will, but go ahead and knock yourself out. Have had it. Help yourself. This is all very Unusual. And a lot of times we don't recognize God in the unusual and the unexpected. Remember, nothing happens by accident, so don't be so quick to dismiss the possibility of some unusual event being orchestrated by the Lord. I mentioned in the article in the bulletin this morning about a revival meeting, and I knew ahead of time that when I asked Brother Pat to come, I've known Brother Pat for years, I knew exactly what style that he has i knew basically you know where he would be coming from and i also knew that probably going to be some folks think this is different Now i'm not putting him down when i say that i'm saying it's different i mean you know it's maybe you think about a revival you think i ought to call some somebody from north carolina you know one of them you know Foot stomping, snorting, bucking preachers that run up and down the aisle and slobber all over you and scream and yell and yeah, and I, hey, I like that kind of preaching. That's that's great. But sometimes God uses what we don't expect to accomplish His will. Now, here's the third thing: some things, some things are basic to securing the blessings of God. And so let's just look at these things here. Here's number one of on the list. First of all, obedience. Notice Elijah said, give me your son. I mean, here, here is her son. He's dead. He says, give me your son. How would you respond to that? You might say, look, preacher, you've already caused enough trouble around here. I, I, I'd rather you just leave. Get out of here. I've got to make funeral arrangements. I don't have time for this nonsense. But this woman was obedient. She obeyed. But what if she would have refused? I mean, she could have said, you know, don't be stupid. There's nothing that you can do or a lot of other things. And I can't help but wonder how many times we've deprived ourselves out of the blessings of God simply because we refuse to obey God. You see, sin is a costly thing. We pay a high price whenever we re- 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 rebel against God. You say, well, what's God want me to do? Well, just read the Bible and you'll find out for the most part. And if we're not obeying God in those areas, we can't expect God to bless us in other areas because obedience is the key to having our needs supplied. So that's one of the major factors, but that's not all. Look in verse number number 19. We see faith is involved in this, and he... Elijah took him, the little boy, out of her bosom. Do you see what he's doing? He is about to undertake a project that's going to make him look like a blooming idiot if it fails. He's putting his reputation on the line. He knows that if this fails, he's going to look like a fool. He's attempting to do something that as far as we know had never been done before. There's no record in the Bible of anyone ever being brought back to life until now. I mean, what was it that made Elijah think that something could be done? I'll tell you what it was. It was faith. You you see, faith is willing to trust God for that which is unseen, and that's exactly what God expects from His people. You say, well, what is it about faith that impresses God so much? It's the fact that faith honors God. God is glorified when we trust Him. So faith honors God, and God honors faith. So you have you have obedience, you have faith, but then you have humility. If you look further back over in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers, in chapter number 19, you'll see that the law forbids people coming in contact with dead bodies. They were considered ceremonially defiled. In other words, having been in contact with the dead body, they couldn't then go out and worship until after they had been cleansed of their defilement and after a certain number of days and so forth. You see, this is an act of humility on his part. He knows in doing this he's going to defile himself and he does it anyway. You see, that's the very essence of Christ's likeness. Remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2? He said, let let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who took upon himself the form of man. And, And he tells us he took upon himself the form of a servant. It's a picture of humility that although, although he was God, he made of himself no reputation, but took the form of a servant. Listen, if we're going to be Christ-like, there must be humility. Pride is one of the things that God despises. And God does not bless us until we deal with that pride issue. That's why Second Chronicles 7.14 is so important. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. But notice it begins with humility. All revival starts with humility. And here we find a man willing to obey God, willing to trust God, willing to humble himself before God, but it doesn't stop there. And it never does. Whenever we are willing to obey God and to trust God and we have a spirit of humility about us, here's what it leads to. It leads to prayer. In verse number 21, notice what he does. He begins to pray. And I want you to notice four things about his prayer. Number one, it's brief. Boy, I mean, it doesn't take long. I mean, I haven't counted the words here, but, but it's very short. He said, Oh, Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child so... Come unto him again, uh, that's it, you know a lot of times we think we've got to we've got to say a lot, and we feel like that we're heard for our much speaking, and that's not true, so it was brief, but secondly it was packed with emotion, because notice it says he cried unto the Lord, and notice that next little word, one letter word, oh you, you see the emotion that it's in this is not some cut and dried pre-planned prayer he's emotionally involved in the request and then thirdly notice it's specific he didn't beat around the bush he didn't pray for everything in the world He, he prayed for that boy I mean he got right to the point it's a specific prayer that's the way we need to pray what do you want God to do ask God what you want him to do at that particular moment But then the fourth thing is that his prayer was answered. Do you realize that we all have needs that can only be met through prayer? How many of you attended our revival meeting on Wednesday night? Let me see your hand. How many of you were here? I know some of you, others would have liked to have been here. But I want to tell you what, if that that doesn't move your heart and encourage you to pray, I don't know what would. Everything depends on prayer. If we don't pray, it makes no difference how good the preacher preaches, how well the choir sings, how much money we give, or anything else. If we don't pray, it's going to end in failure. Everything depends on the effectiveness of our prayer life. So we see this mystery. Why God would allow a good woman like this to suffer the loss of her child, the thing that she loved most. And she's confused about it and she's being critical as a result of it. But then we see the miracle. But here's the bottom line. I want you to notice the manifestation that is, that which is revealed as a result of the miracle. And i got to tell you, God never works miracles just to be doing something. He's got plenty to do without entertaining people. He's not in the business of entertaining people. And when you read those seven miracles that Jesus did in the Gospel of John, if you really study those out, and we've done that before and you know that in each instance those miracles, those signs, those wonders were recorded that people might believe. Now let's notice what happens because we see the mother's confusion and here we see that the miracle convinced her that Elijah was a man of God. Let's go back and read it again, what she says. Verse number 24, Now, in other words, this was not true before. Now, by this, That is the miracle. By this I know that thou art a man of God. She's convinced that this is a man of God. Now, listen, I don't suspect that any of us are going to be working miracles lately, but we need to understand there are people watching us. At school, on the job, in the neighborhood, even here at church, there are people that are watching us. And whether you realize it or not, They're observing your life and they ought to see something in your life that causes them to believe that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If they're not seeing that, there's something really amiss in your life. Something ought to convince them this is a Christian. I remember years ago my dad uh, coming home and he said, uh, he said, "We're, we're going to take this guy Dad and I went hunting or fishing every weekend, was going hunting that weekend. And they'd hired a new employee down there, a young guy. I mean, he was probably in in his 20s. Dad was considerably older than that. And uh, it really wasn't like Dad to do that. But, but I'll never forget Dad talking about this guy and, and and, you know, how morally pure and good and decent this guy was. He really made an impression on my dad. Now listen, we need to make that kind of an impression upon people that we come into contact with. To live in such a way that we convince them, that remember that's what Jesus said, And by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, in that you have love one for another. So that's one of the factors involved in you and I convincing other people that we are the disciples of Christ. But notice that was not the only thing. She said, I'm convinced that you're a man of God, but I'm also convinced that the words you speak, the word of the Lord that you speak, that it's the truth. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could convince everybody that the word of God is really true? You see, most people don't believe that today. It's kind of like somebody said, you know, you're the only Bible that some people will ever read. What if the print be blurred? Some folks that will never pick up the Bible will form an opinion about Christ and Christianity based on what they see in us. Now, there's two things here I want to close with, two things I want you to think about. Number one, if you're saved, this ought to encourage you. It ought to remind you that God is able to meet your needs. Now, don't you leave here thinking that just, you know, that that I'm saying that just because God did this, that He'll do anything you want Him to do. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that God is able, and if God doesn't, it's because God has a better plan, a different idea. And and who would we be to say, well... (laughs) Well, Lord, that's wrong. That's not fair. Can you think of anybody that other than Jesus, it was better than John the Baptist? I mean, I can't based on what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He said, those born among women, he said, there's not a greater than John the Baptist. He's top-notch first class. He got his head cut off. Why did God allow that to happen? Does that seem unfair to you? Well, sure it does. It seems unfair. But I'll tell you what, I am not going to judge God. You see, we don't see the big picture. His ministry was over at that point. It was over. He completed the work God gave him to do. There was no reason for him to remain on earth And God took him to a place that was far better. Don't be guilty of sitting in judgment of God, but be convinced that God is able to do anything and will always do the right thing. Secondly, if there's someone here that's unsaved, you need to realize that you've got a problem that's much greater than the problem of this boy. Here's a boy that is dead physically, but if you're not saved, you're dead spiritually. Spiritual life is more important than physical life. Every unsaved person is spiritually dead, and only Christ can give them life. Now, here, think about this. Every unsaved person is spiritually dead. You work with people that are spiritually dead. You go to school with people that are spiritually dead. And they're going to spend eternity separated from God. Now, as a preacher, I can think about how exciting it would be to have been there that day, seeing this poor woman in her state of desperation and and bringing her son back to life and to see the smile on her face and the joy that it brought to her heart. That's a preacher's dream, to know that you helped somebody. To know that somebody appreciated what you did. To, to know that you were able to minister to someone like that. That would have been a joy, and I'm sure all of you feel the same way. But I want to tell you something more wonderful than raising the dead is bringing someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that's something every single one of us can do. Amen. We can bring spiritual life by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brother Ron and I were talking a while ago, and several years ago we I, I taught a series of lessons. It went on for months, in fact. Several of the men and I met through all of these lessons on discipleship, I've taught them on other occasions, and then at the end of it, we started another series, and this series had to do with home Bible studies. I fixed up six lessons, I believe it is six lessons in the series of basic Bible truths that that I mean just go go through all the information needed to lead somebody to Jesus Christ. I mean. The, Brother Ron was talking about, you know, he had some people on his heart, and I told him a while ago, and I went down and looked up that file, and there it was. It's been there for I, I, I don't know how long. You know, folks, listen, there, there are a thousand and one things we can do to, you know, to help people. But the most important thing we can ever do to help somebody is to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings life to those that are spiritually dead. What a great God we have. Sometimes we look around us and we think about the condition of our nation and, you know, who among us does not sometimes worry about the future of our nation? We think, oh my, where is this going? Am I right? I picked up Brother Pat one day down there and, boy, he come out of the motel and... (laughs) his countenance was even different and it it was the day that, that night he was bringing the message on the conditions that, you know, that we live in the world today, how bad it is And, and he was really visibly upset just preparing his thoughts for that message and we talked about, you know, how bad things really are and going to, you know, get even worse but That's the bad news. The good news is God is still God, folks. And he's able to do exceeding, abundant, above all that we could ever ask or think. We can always trust him to do the right thing. And even during those times when it seems like, wow, this is so unfair, remember, God has a plan. And he's working it out. Let's all stand. Father, help us to be so careful about getting bitter and complaining. We're so glad this world is not our home. Surely none of us would have wanted to spend eternity in a sinful world like this when our heart yearns for heaven. But Lord, we know that we're here for a reason, and we're here just for a season. And so help us to understand not all of the details of the plan. We could never do that. But help us to understand that you really do have a plan, and it's the right plan, the best plan. So may we commit our ways unto you. And Lord, help us even this week to look for you in the unusual and the unexpected places and to be ready to do your will. For we pray in Jesus' name.